The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. So I want to introduce you to uh, somebody who I've had the privilege of starting to get to know over these uh, this last couple months. Uh, her name's Danny. Uh, she has been on staff here now part-time for how long, Danny? Since July, so pretty new. I've got, have the privilege, had the privilege to get to know her because she's been helping us out at 7 p.m. She's been um, serving communion with us and hosting um, in different capacities that service. Um, and she is just a, a very, um, not only thoughtful person, but a person who sees very clearly. She sees into things um, in ways um, oftentimes I, I can't. And so it's a really a pr- been a privilege to get to know you. And um, thanks for coming and talking with us. So here she is. Well, a lot of that is yet to be decided, right? Um, So you guys don't know me, and I don't know a lot of you. I know some of you. But I thought maybe a way that I could introduce myself to you a little bit is um, there's this whole beautiful subversion is really John's way of talking about what it means to be leaders in this 21st century, right? I don't know if that has sort of come out in the last week or so, but that's, I think, essentially what we're getting at. And we're kind of looking a little bit at what Bill Robinson has to say to that to that with his book, Incarnate Leadership. Now, what I thought I would do is take you on a little tour of some leaders in my life. And I don't know, you might relate to some of them, you might not relate to any of them, but it doesn't matter because the whole point is that then you know me a little bit better. So this is is probably my first leader. Um, Cookie Monster, you know, I did not miss Sesame Street as a child, and there was no DVR. So my parents were very faithful in actually turning on the TV and letting me watch this. Second hero, Wonder Woman. I had to show you guys these slides. Can you believe this? I mean, I was five years old when I was infatuated with Wonder Woman. And, like, what in the world? What, what is that about? So anyway, I apologize to men who have trouble seeing women in bathing suits, but hopefully this won't be too much of a stumbling block to you tonight because, I mean, she's got a gold tiara. Like. All right. Um, sort of at the same time, Dukes of Hazard, totally my heroes. Um, not so much on Daisy Duke. Uh, I think it was just because I knew I'd never be able to wear shorts that short. Um, but loved when they jumped in the car over anything. I just thought that was like the coolest thing. And I remember, I'll never forget, I was in kindergarten. We lived in Pennsylvania. And I only lived there for one year, so it's not a big part of my life. But it's just a vivid early childhood memory. And I got to stay up an hour later every Friday night to watch the Dukes of Hazard. Really, really big deal in my life. All right. So we're moving now to more like middle elementary in my case. So I'm giving, I'm, I'm 36. Um, so Luke Skywalker, I had this great clip. If you're, those of you that are, that are Star Wars fans, and I might not be talking to anybody in this room, but if so, just bear with me. Okay, so I had this great clip of Luke in this picture right here with the music that's playing with the two moons, which is like, it still just stirs my soul, I have to tell you. 
And then, of course, you know, you can't ignore Yoda, so I had to put him in there, too. But, um, yeah, Star Wars, very... Um, <laughs> gosh, I'm such a product of pop culture. <laughs> but it's just the way it is. I just am. So, all right. So let's move forward now, you know, yeah. Um, I have to tell you that this picture right here, I'm so glad that I was able to find it, the one with him smoking the pipe. That is my favorite shot in all of the Lord of the Rings. I, I think that it's because it's the brooding Aragorn and you don't know who he is yet. And those of you that have read the books, you do know who he is. And so there's just this anticipation. But totally leader in my life, speaks into what it means to, um, to be human. Okay, so I don't know if you guys are into Lost, um, but I am. And um, I just, I had to find some pop culture women. Uh, and, and I have to say that Kate, if you ever watch the series, you know, she's not a huge hero of mine. But I love the fact that she tries to engage in the struggle. There's a sense in which she really tries. She puts herself out there. And so that I like about her. Now I'm going to move to the next one. You guys laugh. Does anybody know who this is? No, I'm not. I think I heard it back there. No, no, I didn't hear it. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not quite as tall. Um, but um, maybe similar, similar fashion style. Um, <laughs> so this is... Um, this is where I wanted to just get a little bit more serious. So, of, of course, none of you know who this is. This is Henrietta Mears, and she, um, she was not a pastor. She was not ordained, but she worked at Hollywood Presbyterian Church in the early 1900s. She was there right around 1930, um, and from that point on, so I think her ministry lasted about 25 years. Um, hugely influential presence in that church. She, um, she had a disciple group with Bill Bright, and Billy Graham, and she actually was one of the forerunners of the sort of the modern Sunday school mo uh, movement. She really believed that children uh, were should know about Scripture, and so she did a whole bunch of publishing to try to make sure that children actually learned about the Bible. So, true, true leader in my life, and I've read a lot about her, and she has become a hero of mine. So that is just a short synopsis on who I am. And and why I'm why I'm here tonight. <laughs> oh boy, I don't know if that was a good idea or not. I hope that it was because Brenna really worked hard to make that happen. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I just I wanted to share with you these things because I want to make sure that we are talking about the fact that leadership really sort of means, at least the way that I understand it, it's about engaging human beings. It's about engaging the authentic human experience. And I think that leadership is about calling forth the best in each other and working together towards something good in the world. And these are just kind of broad strokes that I'm painting here. And I think the reason why leadership essentially becomes part of the mission of the church is because it's not first and foremost organizational and structural. Because I think that sometimes when I hear that word, it sounds corporate. It sounds like a corporate message, like sort of the, the corporate leadership out there. But I don't think that in its essence that it's really about creating more profitable 
and more efficient organizations. I don't think that that's what leadership is. I don't think that it's corporate on sort of the large organizational level. I think that it's about people and that, that it's personal. And that's why I think that leadership fits in to the mission of the church. Because it's about what it means to be in relationship with God and what God says about our relationships with each other. I wanted to read something from 2 Corinthians. And this is from 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. It says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting, and here's what I want to pick up on just slightly, entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. That we then become heirs of that message of reconciliation. And then this means that no matter where you go, no matter what your occupation is, no matter what you do with the 24 hours that consist of the days of your life, that your life has purpose, that my life has purpose, and that our lives are always pregnant with potential. Because God has called us into that ministry of reconciliation. And that ministry of reconciliation is always about doing something in the world. It's about actively participating. And so in that, it's not that we're called to be sort of organizational or structural leaders, but we're called to figure out how is it that we can actively engage in this mission that God has sent us on? How is it that we can be those agents of reconciliation? What does that call forth within us? Uh, What does that do to our human experience? And part of that is developing leadership. Um. So now to move on to the scripture that I really want to examine tonight, where I lost my little clicker thing. Um, I want to take us into more of an Advent theme. And I want to look at um, one verse in the Gospel of John. Because if we are going to be called forth into this ministry of reconciliation, then we have to know what that's about. We have to know what that mission was, right? What is the mission that God has called us on? Well, it's really about what happened in the incarnation, right? So how exactly did God choose to reconcile himself to the world? So we need to start at the beginning. And so tonight we're going to start with, from the Gospel of John, from John 1. 114 here. That in the beginning, or not that part, but, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. I like working with John here because John doesn't mess around. He has this idea of who Jesus was from the very beginning. His gospel doesn't narrate it um, historically in the sense that we see in some of the other gospels. In Luke and Matthew, we see more, this is what actually happened, and this is what led up to Jesus' birth. But John's articulation of the gospel is very different. He starts from a more theological perspective. He starts, and it's actually the last gospel written. And so you can tell that he has a different perspective than the other ones, that he's writing something um, from a perspective that has thought long and hard about what exactly this is that has just happened. And so he says, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we 
have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. We don't really often talk that much about God's glory. And I think a part of that is just because it's hard to get. It's one of those things that just kind of slips through our fingers. There's no image of it in our culture. There's no way of kind of getting our grasp around what that word really means. But it's really important to John, this word glory. And it comes up again and again. And so I just thought I'd list some of those things for you so you can just see that it's not something that John does unintentionally. That when he uses this word, he's full of intention when he uses it. Because it comes up over and over again. Um, when Jesus turns the water into wine, uh, the, the gospel writer says that he revealed his glory. In John 5.41, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, I don't accept glory from human beings. Um, in John 7:18, I think he's again talking to the Pharisees there. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent is true, and there's nothing false in him. John 13:32, God will glorify him in himself. And then I especially wanted to point out this one. In 17, um, this is that great high priestly prayer when Jesus is with his disciples for the last time on earth. And he's talking with them, and he actually spends this great long prayer um, praying for their mission in the world. And he, and he says these words. He says, I glorified you, and he's talking to God. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Um, God's glory in John is really important. And there's this, there's this reflection back and forth in which Jesus is saying he doesn't accept glory from anyone else. He doesn't accept glory from human beings. But he accepts it from God, that he has glorified God, and that now he's asking God to glorify him, and that somehow within this relationship between Jesus and God, within the Trinity, there is this glorification that takes place. Now, I know that this... Um, this can sometimes feel like, how do we even get our hands around this concept? Because it feels, um, we just don't have anything in our culture that helps us to open up what this actually is. So we've got to turn back to the Old Testament. And I think that this might be the way that we can start to kind of get a grip on what is t- what's happening here. I just did a little search on God's glory. Uh, when do we first see this in Scripture? And I noticed that the first time that, that Scripture ever refers to God's glory is when the cloud is making its appearance, leading the Israelites um, through the wilderness. That's the first time that that word ever appears. And that's a clue to me that glory has to do with God's presence. So then I persevered on a little bit more, and Exodus 33 became really key to me. Um, And I want to read this to you, and then we're going to reflect on it just slightly. So Exodus 33, 18 to 22. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. So a little bit of the history on this is that Moses has been leading these people through the wilderness. He is getting sick of it. He has already brought down the Ten Commandments. He has already faced the golden calf. He has already had people that have said to him, you know, we don't want to do this. We don't want to be a part of this. And then he has this time where he goes back up to the mountain. And what does he say to God? He's angry. He's upset. And this is what he says. 
Um, because God is asking him, I need you to lead my people. And Moses says, okay, I will lead your people, but you need to show me your glory. And this is where we pick up. Moses said, show me your glory, I pray. And this is God. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. My face shall not be seen. Moses here is asking God, To show him the fullness of God's presence. The fullness of God's presence. Not in part, but all of who God is. Every part of God. And God says, no, I can't show you every part of who I am. It's too much. I've got to put you in the cleft of the rock. And I've got to protect you. And then my glory, my presence... All of who I am will pass before you. So, after reading this, when we go back to that first verse that I read in John, and when John makes that intentional statement that we have seen his glory, what is he saying? He's telling us that there is this mirror between God the Father and the world. And that that mirror is sitting in that manger. That all of the presence of who God is, every part of who God is, is living and breathing and alive in that manger scene. That we have seen his glory. There is no doubt in my mind that John knows that that is exactly the glory that Moses was not able to see. So this is how God chooses to do reconciliation. This is the mission that God is on, right? So if we want to consider how we can partake in that mission... If we want to see how we can be a part of that reconciliation that God has already done, what does that then look like for us? God is saying, this is what I have done. I have revealed my glory. Now, what do you do? Well, I think that what we can do can take two, um, there's lots of things that we can do, but I'm just going to pick up on two things tonight, two things that, that I think that we see specifically in the incarnation. Two things that highlight what God is doing here and that, that mobilize us to move forward as those agents of reconciliation that I talked about earlier. This is what we do. We reveal ourselves. Now, 
those are really small words. Sorry about that. But we reveal ourself in weakness. We reveal ourself in weakness. And I'm going to talk about these things by two things, confidence and humility. And I want to link those to revealing ourselves in weakness. Because I think that that is what God is doing there. That revelation of God's glory is a revelation of God's true self, but in weakness, in the sign of a baby. And we're going to discuss what, 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 what weakness actually means there. So number one, we reveal ourselves. Um, in the book, uh, Bill Robinson actually talks about this as bending the light. He says that we reflect light back in the world, that we're not black holes, that we don't hoard the light, we don't absorb the light, but instead we reflect that light back into the world. And he says that we do that by confidence and humility. And this is a powerful combination. They're not two things that we often see linked together, but instead, but this is actually how it happens. Um, we reveal our confidence, the, our confident self in the weakness um, of humility. Confidence. I want to start with that. Confidence literally means with faith. Con fide. With faith. So something that you do with faith, with courage that you're actually going to be able to do it. And the thing that I've noticed about confidence is that it allows us to get out of the way. Um, and if you, if you doubt what I'm saying here, I want you to imagine what it feels like to try to communicate in a new language. When you try to communicate in a new language, you can't help but stutter and stammer over all of the rules that you can't seem to get straight in your head and your vocabulary is floating all around and your insecurities rise and your self-consciousness rises. And before you know it, and maybe this has happened to some of you, you're telling somebody that you're pregnant when really what you mean is where is the bathroom. So that's happened to me a few times. Where, Or you're telling somebody... <laughs> It happened to me once in, in Mexico. Um, or, or you're telling somebody that they're really beautiful when you really mean that you want to know how to get to the store. I mean, just vocabulary can be very confusing in those moments when we have high self-awareness because we're not confident. We're not confident. Our insecurities are mounted, and so we get in the way. But when we're confident... It doesn't matter. It's almost like people can see through us. We become transparent. When we're confident, our skills and our gifts get, get to be used with joy, and we get out of the way. You can't see us anymore because we're doing what it is that we need to do. It's not that we shy away from our gifts and our skills, but instead that we move into them more fully. Confidence, though, is not arrogance. And I think that is the part where we get confused in our culture. It's not arrogance, and it's not pride. Because, see, pride clouds our perspective. Pride reminds us that it's all about us. Um, confidence is more interested in what God is doing and how we can participate in it. And it's not as much interested in what we are doing. Athletes are confident. Musicians 
are confident. Teachers are confident. People are confident when they know how to step out into what they're doing in a way that makes them almost disappear. We notice confidence more fully when we don't focus on the person, but instead we're able to focus on the purpose of the person. Then that person moves out of the way. I thought about what this is kind of an example from my own life. And, um, you know, I, before coming to UPC, well, years before, I, I served as um, a pastor to college students and to high school students in Los Angeles. And it was a much smaller church than this, so it had a very different culture. And, um, and I know a little bit about how to play an instrument. I, I play the guitar a little bit, but I don't play it that well. And yet when you're in a smaller church, you just sometimes you don't always have the option to not play. Um, and so this was a great example of somebody who's not confident getting in the way of what's happening because I... Um, I, I would stumble through these worship songs, not always, but sometimes, and it was always a reminder to me of the fact that I was focusing more on myself, because it was like, okay, what chord comes next? Okay, what's the next verse of this song? Okay, is everybody okay? And you're just, you're highly aware of that situation. Um, there was a confidence that I lacked that put me in that place. And yet when we engage our gifts to the best of our ability, then we move out of the way. And then that, that's the confidence that we see in that manger scene, isn't it? Um, God had been working on this, sending prophecy, choosing Abraham, calling his people. God had been doing this work for 2,000 years. And God does not do it half-heartedly. It is a confident move. It is very confident, but it's not arrogant, and it's not prideful. It's a result of God's decision to move forward. So confidence helps us to move forward in being agents of reconciliation in the world. Second thing is humility. Humility literally means of the earth. Hume, hummus. Earth. That's where that word comes from. And I love that word because it links us so much to that meaning that the humble person is grounded. The humble person is connected to the earthiness of life. There's something so good that happens to us when we are deeply connected to our own frailty and our own human weakness. And I love this part about being around children. I have three children, and they're young. I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. So my house is never clean. So don't ever expect it to be. Um, But the wonderful thing about being around this age group is that they are humble. And it's unintentional. It is just the way life is at that stage. They are grounded. They are connected to their bodies. Somebody always has ketchup on their face. Somebody has to go to the bathroom. Somebody's shirt is inside out. Somebody has the wrong socks on. Somebody is putting underwear on their head. I mean, just the list goes on. And it's just this sense in which you, I am aware by watching my children that we are freest when we are connected to our own weakness, when we are connected to our bodies. We live in these bodies, 
And the closer that we are to our imperfections, the better that we are. The more aware we are of what God is doing in our lives. I just think that this is the way it works. This is the way that we grow as people who are, who believe in Jesus. When I lived in South Africa, um, I lived with a family, an amazing family. And, uh, the, the woman who, the mother of the house, who's a dear friend of mine, um, had a long-standing relationship with a woman in her church, uh, my church when I was there, who, a long-standing relationship with somebody who had schizophrenia. And, um, the whole questions that surrounded this relationship were very complicated. He would call at awkward hours. He would call in the middle of dinner. He would call early in the morning. He would call late at night. She would pick him up and take him to different appointments. It was just a very complicated and messy relationship. Um, and when I asked her about just how that was for her, she said something to me that I'll never forget the rest of my life. Um, and what she said was that, you know... Daniel might not ever change, but I have changed. And I thought, that is humility. That is humility. Because she, being a fully functional person, cannot always be aware of her own weakness. But when she is in relationship with somebody else, she cannot help but be aware of human frailty and human weakness. And it changes her. So the mission then is not about making Daniel a more functioning person. The mission is about what God is doing through people of weakness in us, in our own life. How are we transformed through those relationships? Not how do we transform those people, but how are we transformed that's a humble perspective, a, connect, a perspective that's connected to the earth, that's connected to our bodies. It's a perspective that creates God, that allows space for God to work. Um, you know, humility doesn't always mean um, that it's weak in the sense of what our world thinks is weak. Um, and, and I have, and the best example that I can think of this humility is so hard to talk about because it always kind of erupts among us. It's not really something that we can strive towards. It's kind of something that happens to us. Um, but I can think of three humble moments in my life that I think capture a picture of what humility is. And those three moments are the times, each time that I held my child in its first few breaths. That is a humble of moment. For me, it's a picture of humility. And I'll tell you why. I think that it captures two things that capture humility. One is that it's precious. It's holy. It's fragile. In those moments, we see the beauty of what it means to be human. But the second is that it's ugly. It's raw. And when I held that, that baby for the first time, I am highly aware of what it took to get that baby out into my arms. And it was not easy. And I, um, yeah, I can tell you more about that later. <laughs> That's way too long of a story. But it is raw and it is ugly. And I promise you, you that are married, that 
there is this moment when you walk down the aisle and your wife is clothed with aesthetic beauty. That will not happen on the day that she gives birth to your first child. <laughs> it just won't. There is never a moment in my life when I have been more connected with the rawness of the body than in giving birth. And yet, to hold that baby and to see the beauty and the fragile human life, that is that humble moment. And I think that that is, um, that is a picture and an image of humility that I can walk with and work with in the life that, that we live here. I love that in Screwtape Letters, um, C.S. Lewis has a really amazing insight in that book. And what he says is that um, he's, you know, it's, it's Screwtape, and so he's commenting on what God thinks about these people, humans. And, um, and he's, he says to Wormwood, who's the junior devil, he says, You can never forget that he really does love these little creatures. And I love that because it's in those moments, those raw moments when just everything is falling apart that we realize that God really does love us. He loves our creatureliness. He loves the fact that we live in bodies. If he didn't, he would not have come in a body. God loves and designed that connection to be these finite beings, to be creatures Not to be God, but to be creatures and to be dependent. And we're so resistant of that in our hearts. We are so resistant of that. But when we see how much God loves us, we can step forward in confidence without the paralysis of making it all about us. We can let go of our insecurities, or at least we could admit them in humility. And then we can get out of the way and see what happens. Confidence and humility. These are the two things that, um, that we're talking about tonight. And I think that these are two attributes of leadership that our world really needs right now. It's not um, because the agenda in this kind of leadership is to figure out what it means to live as an authentic human being, right? To live as an authentic human being. And where else can we go to answer that question but the Incarnation? Where else can we go to answer that question but the manger? To reveal ourselves, to reveal ourselves, our confident selves, but in weakness. I wanted to um, have a disco ball here tonight, but I don't have one, um, to show the effect of so many tiny little mirrors in one room. Because I thought that that could help us get a a better picture of what it looks like for things to be reflected. How light can scatter all about the room when mirrors are reflecting the light that has been shown on them. Um, Because here's the thing, that transforming power that we long for, that, that sense that our lives have purpose, that we are caught up in something bigger than ourselves, that really does look like the baby born in Bethlehem. This really is the message that the world needs. It's not laughable. It doesn't fly in the face of what the world needs. On one level, it does. But on the other hand, it's really what power looks like. It's really what power looks like. Power really looks 
confident but weak, confident but humble. Um, Any other power only exists by force. That's the only other way that power can exist. But when it is transformative and it's engaging, it doesn't exist by force, but in weakness. It's fully human. And that is what John was talking about when he says that we have seen his glory, that we've had that picture of the fullness of who God is. This is what it means to be God, to be confident, but exist in weakness, to have that fully human element, and that is never gone. And so when we believe this, we are called to be agents of reconciliation no matter where we are in life. It's not organizational, it's not corporate, but it's the nitty-gritty of life no matter where we are. And we are called to witness to the fact that what God is doing in that manger, that is real power. And that is where our leadership and our um, ministry of reconciliation can go. So um, that's all that I have for us tonight. But I have some questions which I want to share. And I, I have a way that we can engage this a little bit um, more fully. We're doing okay on time. So here I'll read the questions and then I want, I was hoping that maybe we can get in groups of three or four, you know, just maybe people around you. And I want you to pick one question and just kind of jump into it. First thoughts. I mean, this isn't really about, um, forming a deep argument here. This is really just kind of about what strikes you. So what forms of confidence do you see in the world and what does the world tell us about confidence? So is the world giving us kind of the same message that we talked about tonight? What forms of humility do we see in the world? What does the world tell us about humility? Um, and then the third question is how are some, how are these the same or different from what we see God doing by revealing himself in weakness? Um, So we have about three or four minutes. It's not that long, but this is just a chance for you to kind of take that pause. And and I I did this because I know that whenever I hear something, it's very important to me to have a chance to process it. So if you're not a learner like that, I apologize. And you can just maybe listen to what other people have to say. But I'm guessing that there might be other learners like that in the room who just kind of need that chance to process. So that's what this time is about. And then we'll come back and gather again after those three or four minutes are up. I'm going to bring us back, and I know that we were, I know that conversations are taking off, and that is a great sign. Um, And so hopefully these are conversations that we can then pick up on after the night is over, but I'm guessing that we probably could benefit mutually from hearing from each other and hearing some of these things. Kyle even just had a perspective here that that would be a great entry point into this whole conversation. So I was thinking, um, as you were talking about confidence, I was thinking, how do the words confidence and confide relate to one another as we confide in one another? Um, and it seems like confide, you, know, you were talking about confidence is a, is a lot about trusting ourselves or having faith in, in ourselves or in God. Um, and confiding is, is like the same thing but for me to you, mm-hmm. to trust um, that you have my best in mind and that I can be uh, who I am in front of you. And as I continue to think about that, one of the things I've had a hard time with um, as far as faith goes and thinking about why do we confess? And the Bible talks about confessing 
one another, our sins to one another. And I've, I've always had a hard time with that because it's like God's already forgiven us. I, I believe that we have forgiveness in the cross, and yet there still is this um, call to, to bear one another's burdens and tell to confess our sins to one another. And so I thought maybe um, as you're talking about forms of the confidence do you see in the world and what forms do, uh, does the world tell us or what does the world tell us about confidence, maybe confidence in a scriptural way looks like um, being open mm-hmm. and being able to confide in each other, whereas confidence in the world seems often to be about building walls and showing that I don't need you. Or is, that, that, is that resonating with people here? I wonder if anybody has any, any response to what Kyle is saying. So faith in yourself, sort of believing that no matter what, you can do it, you'll get through it. Is that sort of what that means? I'm just... Right. And it's sort of a sense of, I don't need anybody else. Right. This sort of connection, this idea that, that no matter what, I can do it. And that works to an extent. But when that is pushed against by some external circumstance, um, that level of confidence sort of on some it's it's propped up artificially, isn't it? It doesn't have sort of the grounding, that humility, which sort of is the fertile soil for the other kind of confidence to grow, you know? It's almost this propped up confidence, which it can can have quite a long life in our culture, actually. But um, but the question kind of always remains underneath. What What is beneath it? What is what's propping it up? What is the structure? And, and is it going to last? I mean, is it is it an ongoing, lasting confidence? Or is it is it sort of doomed to be short-lived because of what it is? Yeah, yeah. And it could be the sort of thing. I mean, I don't know. Tell me what you think about this. It could be the sort of thing where, I mean, I don't know that the kind of confidence that the incarnation is teaching us is to... Um, to deprecate ourselves in that kind of situation. I mean, that's not what I see God doing, but it's more of that inner confidence of who you are, not necessarily the selling of yourself, which is, I think, maybe kind of what more you're hearing a little bit about in the interview. So there's kind of a difference there, just slight, but still, that is a really good insight into what confidence is like in the world that we live in. Somebody over here had something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's, I I love that, because it seems like what we're always needing to figure out is what does that confidence look like when it's paired with humility? I mean, what does that confident person do when they show up to work and they're, you know, zipper is undone. You know, it was just, I'm just trying to think of something. You know, it's just the sense of what, how does humility enter into the picture? And is the confidence artificial? Is it propped up? Or does it exist in spite of that? Is there a connection to actually, um, is there a connection to our bodies, a connection to weakness, a connection to um, these other things? Yeah. Yeah. Because people who have suffered, people who have been in touch with their weakness, um, come across with that sense of encouragement. Because no matter what happens, it's like they know. 
they know the other side of the story. I mean, there's always another side of the story, right? There's always another side of the story. Um, I'm just thinking about some of these people that you were talking about, that sort of false confidence and what would it be like for them to be um, at the bedside of a dying person. You know, you always wonder, what does confidence look like in these, and can it stand up? to these different contexts of humility. Um, and it might look one way on a football field, but another way in the face of illness. And it seems like t- true confidence, you know, incarnational confidence can stand up in every circumstances. It stands up in the face of death. That's just what it is. Yeah. It seems like, um, th- th- as we're talking, it seems like more and more we, I've been learning just through hearing about this and seeing it through that lens of confession I was talking about before. It's in some ways we're called to confide in one another so that we can have that constant uh, um, constant communication with humility and with, um, in some ways, being humiliated in, in, by actually having to share things about ourselves that we wouldn't want to tell people, or that we would only that we can only tell people who we're really close to. But we confess to one another, and we have that experience of I. Um, am not perfect, mm-hmm. and yet people still accept me. Mm-hmm. You are not perfect, and yet I still accept you. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, that builds some sort of a, maybe a true confidence. It seems like it invites confidence. us into that true community, doesn't it? Because it, it, then it ceases to be about us and our gifts and what we can bring, um, though that is part of it. That remains part of the community, but that that's not what it exists solely for, that it exists for that sense of, that we are dependent and that we know that it's really about something that's bigger than us. It's re- I mean, if it was really just about us, that it's, just, it's not going to last. It has to be about something that's bigger than us. And the only way that we're aware of that is when we have those moments where, the, where God enters in, into our community, and accepts us in spite of who we are, and we realize we really are a part of a body. We really are. I feel like there was somebody over here who maybe had a hand. Did you have your hand or you're just moving? Oh, it's okay. Yeah. And it seems like they all, they need to be married together at every stage in order to be fully functional. I mean, we've talked a lot about confidence, but I'm even thinking about humility. I mean, if we have humility without confidence, it can easily sort of become self-deprecation. I'm having trouble saying that word. Um, Or it can be a disappearing or a sense of false pride of, no, it's okay, you go ahead, I don't need to do that. Or, you know, there's a sense in which you can disappear unhealthily. Um, when you have that false sense of humility. So God is calling us to move, to make the decisions. I mean, the manger is a place where God's biggest decision was made. He's not shying away in that moment. And yet, in that greatest big decision, we see that it comes in fragility um, and in humility. Um, So humility is never meant to be separate from the confidence of decision. Um, As far as... I think it's easy when we look at the life of Jesus to see where he was confident. Yeah. Aside from the manger, which is an example you've cited yeah. already, where do you see Jesus being humble? Can you think of any examples? Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking also just about, yeah, his relationship with the Pharisees was a very humble relationship because he knew as much, if not more, than them. And yet... 
He never chose to quite identify with them, but he didn't do it in a way that um, ignored them or that um, created, um, what's the word, when we can, um, when we could say, oh, you know, we're not, we're, we're, not like them. He never totally separated himself. I mean, he did theologically, but he did it in a public, in a public way to where other people were invited to be a part of that discussion. He didn't privatize that. Um, he didn't create his own sect. He always went to the Pharisees, and yet he remained humble, but not in a way that set himself beneath them. He knew that he was on par with them, and so he always hit them head on. Um, but on the other hand, he never tried to manipulate their power. You know, he didn't come in to manipulate it. He didn't come in to move, uh, to change what they were doing. Um, he, re- he had a respect for them. Um, yeah, so I, I think his relationship with the Pharisees is a really interesting one where it kind of shows both of those. I mean, lo- everything that we've talked about does, but that's one other example. Yeah. Yeah. And he married those things of message and life in such a way that we can never pull them apart. You know, there's not Jesus' message and Jesus' life. You know, they don't exist separately. They exist as a unit. They exist in one body. And um, and that's, I think, our call, too, is to live our lives, to always have that message be in our lives as a part of how we're living and I think we're probably yeah. out of time now. Danny's going to be around after service, so if you guys want to keep this conversation going or even as we're hanging out, um, feel free to talk to her or people around you. So will you pray for us? Yeah. God, thank you so much for um, coming here. The fact that we are still reflecting and um, letting the reality of your birth sink into our hearts so many years later, Lord, is such a testimony of just the fact that that this is real, that this is true, that we do not come here um, to elevate ourselves, but we come here to bear witness to what you are doing in our lives. We thank you for that, and we pray that you would go with us from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.